Amen. So good to worship together on Sundays, isn't it? That's where you say amen, right? There we go. All right. Well, we are going to be in Genesis. You'll see in your bulletin, we're covering the first three chapters of Genesis today. But no, we are not reading all three chapters this morning. Uh, You've already read that as part of your Bible reading plan. But we're going to hit uh, some of the highlights today. And what I want to read is from Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And I'm going to read through verse 28. So if you'll turn over there with me to Genesis chapter 1. Starting in verse 26, and we will read together through verse 28. The word of God reads, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky. And over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And as you are seated, we do have Kingdom Kids today. It's a wonderful ministry that is returning after a Christmas break. And so that's for those who are four years old through second grade. They're out of nursery, but maybe they would like to learn in a, a little bit more free environment besides sitting in the pew. So those who are four years old through second grade are welcome to join our Kingdom Kids workers in the back. They're heading that way now. If you uh, have a kiddo in that age range that's never participated, you'll want to go with them, get them registered. They're going to have a great time learning, worshiping at their level right next door in the downstairs of our education building. And you'll pick them up there after the service today. Well, you heard me reference it already. But if you didn't know, we have started a year-long Read Through the Bible uh, reading plan as a church family. And today's the ninth. We're only nine days in. If you haven't jumped in on it yet, it is not too late. My encouragement would be get this Bible reading plan. They're all over the place. We've got some in the back on the tables in the foyer. Uh, I've got a stack here. You can come grab one off of here. And just pick up on today. Read, read for January 9th, tomorrow 10th. And when you have some free time, get caught up on the days that you haven't read yet, the 1st through the 8th. But hopefully plenty of you have gotten the plan. You've been reading. You've been following along. It's got some description here right on the inside. You can check the little boxes here to kind of track your progress as you read. And you'll notice one of the boxes to check is for journaling. And the simple thing here is that you write down answers to three questions. What did you read? What was it about? What does it mean? And what are you going to do with it? So those are the three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? What will you do with it? And what I encourage you to do is you're reading three chapters a day. This reading plan is actually designed uh, with new... uh, It's like an introduction to reading the Bible. Okay, so if you've never done it before, this is actually created for you. Now, we're still reading God's Word. So even if you've read the Bible cover to cover several times, you're still reading the Bible. So it's still going to be good. But part of its design is that we're only reading three chapters a day. 
Which if you do the math, you realize that's not going to get us through the whole Bible. And there are, so, there are some books of the Bible that are chapters of the Bible that we don't cover. But we're covering kind of the main meat of the scriptures. All scriptures God breathed. All of it is good for us to read. But it's hitting kind of the highlights. So that's kind of the way it's designed. And so what we do is we read through the Old Testament all the way through once. We read Proverbs and Psalms each of those through twice, and we'll actually read select readings from the New Testament three times. So we're really going to get to cover the meat of the scriptures, uh, I think, really thoroughly in the coming year. And then what I'm going to do is I'm just going to preach through a portion of some of that that we have read the previous week. So I'm kind of picking up actually a little from the beginning of the reading plan, because last week we had a guest preacher. Uh, so I'm going to actually cover a good, good portion of this uh, that, that we've read over the past week. But this is a, a great opportunity for us. As I said before, if you want to grow spiritually, there's no way that's going to happen without reading God's Word each and every day. It's just part of our spiritual diet because it's God's Word speaking to us. And we, if you've ever been like me and I've said, God, why don't I hear from you? And you'll get that sense in your spirit, have you been reading the Bible? Because that's how I speak to you. It's not the only way God speaks to us. He speaks to us through circumstances. He speaks to us through other people. He speaks to us in a number of ways. But the primary and clearest way God talks to us is through the scriptures. And so we always are checking all those other ways in which God speaks to us. Sometimes it's not always clear. Well, someone said something to me. Was that from God? Well, how do you know? Part of how you know, a big part is say, well, is that in the Bible? And you don't know that if you haven't read it. And so if you've never read it, I think this is going to be a great opportunity to do that. Also, if you've never read the Bible or if you've struggled to understand it, we've got some study Bibles. We actually had, um, from a couple weeks ago, we had someone donate five extra study Bibles. I gave away all the ones I had, and now I've got five extra study Bibles. And those are fantastic because you'll be reading something someday. You'll say, well, what in the world are they talking about there? I don't understand that. And in a study Bible, I'll have notes at the bottom that often will explain, give an answer to the question you had as you were reading that day's scripture reading. So there's a great tools. Hey, if you need a study Bible, let me know. I'll get you one if you can't afford one or if you don't know what to do, you don't know where to turn. I can uh, easily give you a Bible. I meant to grab some of them out of the library. I forgot. But if you'll catch me afterwards, I'll give you one today. But if you want to buy your own, uh, go to fbckennedy.org slash Bible. That's all you got to do. If you go there, a couple cool things on that page. One, the Bible reading plan, this is in a PDF, so you can download it if you prefer to have it that way. Two, it lists three great study Bibles that I use every week in sermon preparation. You can click on the link, it will direct you to Amazon, and you can purchase that Bible for yourself and have it in a few days. The number three great thing is it's got some wonderful resources, some really helpful resources to reading the Bible. One of my favorite things is a website called BibleProject.com or org or something like that. It's, there's a link on that page. And it's got some great videos. If you have teenagers, preteens, or older children, it's got some really helpful videos. One of them that actually talks about what's the Bible all about? What's the big story of the Bible? And that's what we're going to cover a little bit today. It's got some great videos, some great resources. Go check it out, fbckennedy.org slash Bible. Lots of helpful information at that website. <clears throat> But I'm excited about what God will do because I, I truly believe when we engage God's word, it transforms our life. And if you remember, I mentioned this uh, the last two weeks. I won't go through it this time. But they actually did a study on this. They said if you're reading the Bible, something about the magic number four. If you're reading the Bible four times a week or more, and of course our reading plan is to read it every day. But if you're at least reading it four times a week or more, it has a transformative effect on your life. 
three, two, and one, not so much. Something about hitting, getting over half of your week, four out of the seven days of the week, if you're in God's word, it will have a transformative effect on your life. And so that's why I'm excited about this. Not only that you're going to be reading it, we're going to be reading it together on our own, but also we're going to come together on Sunday morning and look at portions of that that we read the previous week over the next 12 months together. All right, so all that was the introduction. Okay, so now we will pause and we will pray and we will take a look at Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Would you pray with me? Father God, we, uh, we approach your word today with the understanding, with the trust, the belief that what we have before us is inspired by your Holy Spirit. You have given us your words. Yes, through people that you have inspired through your Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, they are your words to us. They're your stories about you and us. And in your word, it tells us that nothing that you speak ever comes back void. It always accomplishes the purposes. Every word you speak, every intention you have through the words, may they land on us and have an impact. As we look at the story of creation and fall, God, I pray that you'd help us to have our minds attentive to you. Clear out all the distractions. That may be warring against our hearts right now, keeping us from being prepared to hear from you. Soften our hearts, Lord, that we may receive the message you have to speak to us. Father, we pray that you'd ready our hands and feet to take what we learned today, or what we were reminded of today, and live it out as we leave this place. This is what we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you go to the website and you watch a particular video from the Bible Project, it's going to tell you what I'm about to tell you. It's just going to be maybe a little bit more interactive, so go check it out. But it's going to tell you this, that the Bible is one big story. Now, I've said this before, but I think it's always worth repeating. When I say story, I don't mean in the fictional sense. I just mean that it's a narrative. It's true. Uh, There are parts of the Bible that are Fictional, like, you know, when Jesus comes up with a proverb or something, he makes up a story to make a point. But there's all sorts of genre in the scripture, but it's all telling one true story. One big overarching story of God and his creation. And that story can be broken up into four chapters. You look at the first chapter, it's the story of creation. You look at the second chapter, it's the story of the fall. Both creation and fall happen within those first three chapters chapters that we're going to look at today. Next week, we're going to get into the third and fourth chapters of the grand story of God. The third being the redemption. After the fall of mankind, when when mankind engages in sin and separates itself from a close relationship with its creator, God, who's going to fix that? Who's going to make that right? Who's going to bring redemption And you see even early on in Genesis, the seeds of redemption that God is planting. Even before he created the world, he knew there would not only be his creation, but be a fall. And that he would have to bring redemption into the world. And so we see the seeds of that, even in Genesis, we're getting into that next week. And then the fourth chapter, so the first chapter, creation, second chapter, fall, third chapter, the redemption after the fall. And then the fourth and final chapter is restoration. Restoration. 
that one day God will bring human history as we know it to an end. Christ will return. God will set up a kingdom that will last forever and it will be perfect. It will be what the Garden of Eden that we'll look at today was supposed to be. A perfect dwelling place between God and His creation. But this time with no more sin. Go read the end of Revelation and you can read that beautiful picture of restoration that is to come. So today, we're going to look at the first couple chapters of this story. The story of creation and fall. And these are fundamental. These are absolutely fundamental to our understanding of who we are and who God is. These are foundational chapters in our lives. And in the lives of human history. What does a creation story tell us? It tells us not only that things were made. Everything you see had to be made by something. Nothing comes out of nothing. Except that God is able to bring something out of nothing. He's the only one. And because He is God, He has brought something out of nothing. He has created the world and all that is in it. But it doesn't only tell us that things were made and that God is its author. It also tells us why we're made, the purpose for which it's made. And this is a very important thing. If you have an object, a piece of machinery or something like that, you, you need to know what's its intention. How's it supposed to be used? What are you supposed to do with it? If you have a clock and it doesn't tell time, then it's violating the very reason for which it was made. Supposed to tell time accurately so you can be at places like the worship service on Sunday on time, right? Some people are like, yeah, but my wife doesn't look at the clock. Okay, that's a whole different story. That's, that's not what we're talking about today. But the purpose for which it's made is informative. And Genesis is laying out for us in creation not only that he made everything, but the purpose for which he made it. And we see the hints of this all the way through This creation story. And in fact, there's two creation stories. You'll find them in Genesis 1 and 2. The first one is more poetic in nature. And the second one is more narrative in nature. But they're telling the same story. That in seven days, or in six days really, God created the earth and everything in it. And on the seventh day, God took a break and rested. Hidden within that story, also obvious within that story, is God's intention. What is obvious in the story is that we are created in His image. We read that in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in His own image. Mankind meaning everyone, male and female. It says that. The image of God, in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. One of the purposes from which we can glean from Genesis 1, 26 through 28, is that God created us in His image. He has stamped us with His image. We are to reflect His glory. Every single human life has value, inherent value. No matter their outward look, no matter their function in society, no matter how much money they have, no matter their cognitive abilities, it does not matter. From the smallest, from from from. Uh, the child in the womb to the person on their deathbed. No matter what value society may assign them and what function they have in this world, God says that person is made in my image. 
and is therefore valuable to me. So you see what it's saying? It's not just saying that God made you. Saying why? Why? I made you to reflect my glory. I made you as an image bearer of mine. That's a pretty obvious thing that it points out. Genesis also points out the obvious that God made us to rule and reign in the world. We're we're to take control and and to subdue. We're to take charge. We're to be those who are not only reflecting God's image in the world and his value, but we're to be a creative force in the world. To take this earth that God has given us and to utilize it for the fruitfulness of mankind and for the glory of God. So we are to, in verse 28, subdue the earth. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. That's part of our job is to glorify God in our work in the world. I think this is really important because all of us, you know, we, we have a different capacity of work, different jobs that we have, different things that we do. You know, from those, even those who are retired, they can look back or they can see what they are, how God is using them in their volunteer work in the church and in the community. We have a role to play. We have something to do. We are still a part of that story of subduing the world, of taking control, of, of glorifying God in the work he has given us to do. Now, one misunderstanding that I think that this part of the Bible clears up for us is that work is not a curse. Work becomes difficult because of sin, but to work in the world was a part of God's created nature, creative nature. He says, I'm going to put you in the world and you've, I've got important work for you to do. And we each have to kind of figure out how our part of that fits into the glory of God. And we have to make sure that it does. But to take charge of the world, to work in the world is a part of our worship. So glorify God and the jobs that we have from the from a stay-at-home mom or you run a company or whatever it is you're doing, God has given you very important work to do. That's another obvious thing. We're made in His image. We're made to work. These are obvious things that God has made us to do. There's a couple other more obvious things that God has made us to do. Why has He made us? He's made us to be connected to one another. The very first thing God did in creating this human world and creating humanity itself is to put us together in a family. This idea of family is not our invention. It's not something we came up with. It was, it was rooted in scripture. We find it here in Genesis that, that God is creating a world and people in it who exist within a family. This is an important part of why we are here is to represent the glory of God within the family unit. And you say, well, where do you find that? Well, I didn't read that, but you read it this past week as you continue to read in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2.15, we read, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. We've covered that already. But verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the knowledge Uh, From any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then jumping up to verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. He created the man first. 
And soon after, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to create a family. I will make a helper suitable for him. So then we read the story in verse 22, Genesis 2, 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You probably heard this at a wedding or two, haven't you? She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and the two become one flesh. Adam and Eve were both naked, and they were not, and they felt no shame. What is the story telling us? That this union between man and woman to create this family is part of God's good design. It's a good and wonderful thing. I know that doesn't happen for everybody. And just like in all these things... It can go south. But we never forget that this was part of God's original designs on the world, that there would be husband and wife. And in a second, I'll mention, of course, what comes from that. A family of children. Now, I want to point this out. Ladies, don't take it personally that you're called a helper. That's not a, that's not a, a low term. That doesn't mean you're less than. Helper is actually a term God will use for himself. To be a helpmate is a very good thing. And of course, husbands are to help their wives as well. That's not just a unique thing for the wives. But you do see something in Genesis that you see reflected, I think, throughout Scripture. That the husband is the one that's supposed to be the one that leads his family. That's their job. And it's a hard and difficult job to have. And a lot of guys, they shirked that. We're going to find that in the story of Genesis 3. That what happens when Eve sins against God and eats of the fruit. Eve was not the issue. She is an issue and her sin is an issue in the Bible. But the real issue is that Adam stood by and let her. Because see, God gave him the command. He said, Adam, you are responsible to communicate the truth to your wife that I have revealed to you about these trees of the garden that you're not supposed to eat of. Some of them you're supposed to. Some of them you're not. That's your job. And Adam failed to do it. Now, what we take from that story is that not only God said, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, this is a good thing. But we also start to see the roles in which God is called. And I just want to issue this as a challenge to us as men. Men, we are called to lead our family. Particularly in the spiritual things. And oftentimes we will shirk that responsibility and let our wives handle it. Now, I understand even in this moment, two things are happening. One, I'm not talking to everybody. Not everybody's married. And I understand. But you'll, you'll allow me to address those who are married. And two, some of you may disagree with me. And that's okay. You can disagree with me. But you do have to wrestle with God's word. You do have to wrestle with that. Disagree with me all you want. I am imperfect. I will say things that are wrong. I try really hard not to. I pray that I don't. But it's inevitable. But you do have to wrestle with Scripture, and there's more Scripture that you'd have to wrestle with. But here's the point, because the real point I want to make here for, for the men is that when God gives his directives, it's to the man who is, supposed to be in, who is supposed to be responsible for his family. That's the job he gives. And as I said, when we get into the fall, we're going to see he falls down on that job. He is there with his wife, and he does not lead her well, and they both fall into sin. So we see not only that God has created husband and wife, you start to see some order in that family and what the roles are supposed to be, but then you also see what is to come of that union. Now again, there's always some exceptions to this. Not every couple is going to be able to have children. But the natural order of things, what God desires for and what is in some ways uh, normal, if I can use that word and, and not sound 
negative because I don't mean it in that way that you're abnormal if you aren't able to have children. I'm not trying to say that. But what I am trying to say is there is something normal and natural and good about having children. That that is a good thing. In fact, it's a commanded thing. That when husband and wife come together that they have children. Like I said, sometimes physically that cannot happen. That can't take place. But that husband and wife come together that Adam and Eve are given this command. It's right there in the scriptures. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. So you see, right from the beginning, you see a family, a husband, a wife, and a mother and a father. That they have a job to do in raising these children in the Lord and sharing with them the truth of God. These are the obvious things that we see. That God created everything is in Genesis, but why he created it, these are the obvious reasons why. To reflect his image, to obey him when he gives these commandments, that the Husband and wife join together. They have children. They're to raise them. To obey the Lord. There's some other things that aren't as obvious, but they are still most certainly there. They're answering the question for us, why? Why would God create the world and everything in it? Some of the less obvious reasons are because God wants connection with us. He wants relationship with with us. Hidden in here is the language of Trinity of the Trinity. If you've ever heard that word Trinity before, it means that, that God exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And they are all God and they are all one, and yet somehow, mysteriously, they are three different persons. It's very hard to make sense of all that. But you see it right from the beginning when God says, We we are creating them in our image. And then later on in Genesis, we, the Trinity, would speak about what they're going to do when sin enters the world and how they're going to handle that situation. But you see from the beginning that God exists in relationship. This is where we get our get married, have kids, have a family, relate to one another, have relationships with people. All that stuff that's in us, where did that come from? That's the image-bearing part of God in us, that God has created us to be relational just as He is relational. Just as God exists as, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from before the beginning of time, so He makes us to exist in a relationship. Not only with one another, but He makes us to exist in a relationship with Him. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but it makes the point. After sin enters the world, you may know the story. Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree that they were told not to eat from by God. The wife Eve is tricked into this by a serpent in the garden representing evil. The husband stands by and does not intervene and play his role leading his family. Sin enters into the world and they suddenly feel the shame of it all. And they see, the, they see one another and they're, they're naked, they're vulnerable, they're, they're exposed. Nothing can be hidden anymore. And they realize it and, and shame fills them up. And so they hide from God. 
They hide from God, which means they were to be with God. And now they're running from God. Now there's separation in the relationship between God and man. Here's what it sounds like. Genesis 3.8 Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. Hidden within that is that God wants a relationship with us. He's walking through the garden to be with his creation. God wants a relationship with you. You may not see him, but he is walking through your life every day wanting to connect with you. That is God's nature. And that is one of the less obvious but still very clearly here points to be made in Genesis 1 through 3. Not that just God created, but why? To have relationship with us. And of course, this is where we get into trouble because there is a fall. Remember, God's, God's word, the Bible's telling one big story in four chapters. We've, as thoroughly as we can in a few minutes, covered chapter one, creation. Not just that God created, but why he created. But then you get to chapter two, which in the Bible is Genesis three, and we see the fall. And what happens in the fall, we've already kind of covered the outline of it. But there's this exchange between the serpent and Eve. Again, Adam is there. Not doing his job while the serpent seduces Eve, tricks her, convinces her that she was wrong about God. So what happens? The serpent's there and looking at the fruit. And he asks a question. He plants In Eve's mind, because she'll allow him, and because her husband is not being the helpmate he is supposed to be to her, plants in her mind doubt that God is right. He says in Genesis 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree, from any tree in the garden? He's planting doubt and he's lying because God didn't say that. God didn't say that they could not eat from any tree in the garden. He said, don't eat specifically from this tree. But see, that's what Satan does. He takes a little bit of truth, mixes it in with a lie, and will use it against us to convince us that maybe we were wrong about God after all. Now, often we would never say that out loud. But here's what happens. See, we're we're part of this grand story of God. We're part of the creation. We're part of the fall. Hopefully we're a part of the redemption. And hopefully we're looking forward to the restoration of all there is. We're part of this story. But Satan will whisper in our ear, but couldn't you write a better story? Look at your story. Look at what you're living in. Don't you think you could have done better? He just plants a little seed of doubt. Now, If you were in charge, if you were writing your story, you wouldn't have wrote that part in. That, that suffering, that difficulty, that challenge. You, you, you wouldn't have put that part in, right? If God were good, he wouldn't have put that part in. 
See, what Satan does is he just plants a little bit of doubt in our mind that God is right, that he's good, that he's great. What's the woman's reply? In verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of garden, in the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Now, it's interesting there. God never said don't touch it. So she's adding to. I don't know where she got that from. Maybe Adam misunderstood. Maybe Adam misinformed. Or maybe Adam didn't, again, do his job and explain it just as God told it to him. So she adds in there a little bit. It's already getting a little muddy. Verse 4, the, Satan, the serpent replies, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God. Knowledge of good and evil will be yours. He plants the seed, and then he waters the seed. He said, did, you know, did God really say that? And then he moves on to, God didn't say that. You're not going to die. You're not going to suffer the consequences of writing your own story. What's going to happen is, is you will be like God, and God doesn't want that. So, so he, he deepens the doubt in Eve's mind. What I, what I just want to point out here, why are we going through all this? Because I want you to see we're a part of this story. This is Genesis 1 through, th- 1 through 3. This was written thousands of years ago. This is about the beginning of all that there is. But see, we are wrapped up in this. We are a part of this story. What you and I experience in temptation is nothing new. The enemy still comes to us and says to us, couldn't you write a better story? What's God doing? He's just sitting over here. He's not helping you. He's not doing anything for you. Just ignore him and do your own thing. Look out for yourself. Write your own story. There's nothing new about that. Satan wants to enter in, create doubt, plant the seed, water the seed. And what are the results? Well, the first result is the shame, the nakedness. Adam and Eve, they try to cover themselves with with leaves, create clothes out of leaves. But when God comes to them in the cool of the day and he's looking for them, his creation, those he loves, and they're hiding, and then they're discovered, and then he begins to question them. Why are you hiding? Did you eat of the tree? Now, who answers first, I think, is instructive. Verse 11 of chapter 3, and he said, this is God speaking, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Who answers first? The responsible, culpable party, the one who bears the most responsibility, the man. And what does he do with all that responsibility he has? He blames his wife. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, I've seen this play out before. See, this is not new stuff, is it? This is stuff we live with. The woman you put here, he blames God first. You put her here. But this woman, she gave me some of the fruit, the tree, and ate it. Now, the woman comes in and is far more responsible, right? She comes in and says, "Uh, let me own my part. I blew it. I'm sorry, God. Nope. Just like the man, she blames someone else. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me 
and I ate. It's a hard reality to know we're caught up in this grand story of God and you and I are part of the fall. Don't think for a second if you were Adam or Eve in the garden, you would have done better than them. We would not have. The proof is in the pudding. How do we live now? Do we not blow it now? Do we not allow Satan to plant seeds of doubt in our mind now? Do we not think with some great amount of hubris that we could write a better story of our lives than God ever has? Don't we fall into these same traps? Of course we do. And it can be hard to hear that. It can be hard to accept that, that I'm part of the fall. I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the reason this world is so broken. To not do what Adam and Eve do when they blame other people, but look in the mirror and say, I too am at fault. I can't escape this responsibility. It's, it's, I don't know, it seems a little rare that people do that. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. It's these people's fault. It's those people's fault. If they wouldn't have, if they hadn't have, oh, then we'd be in better shape. What Adam and Eve show us is that not taking responsibility doesn't get us anywhere. It's hard to hear that we're a part of the reason for the fall of the world, but we are. We are sinners just like Adam and Eve. We're just carrying on just as they began. We continue. Not to jump too far ahead, but we have to have some hope in this. Is that chapter 2, the fall, is not the last chapter. That there is chapter 3 and chapter 4. There is redemption and there is restoration. We even see hints of it in the curse. God, curse may be misunderstood a little bit, but here's the big idea. When, when God brings the curse, he just says, here's the natural consequence of what's going to happen. Husband and wife, serpent, here's the natural consequences of what's going to happen. You've chosen to write your own story, eat that fruit, here's the natural consequences. Here's what's going to happen in your life. And he goes through the, the curses at the end of chapter 3. And what we find is God says, one will, Eve, a child of yours is going to step on that serpent's head and crush it. That is the hope of redemption, that someone will come along and put an end to evil. As the hope of restoration. And that person who has come into the world to do what we could not and live a perfect life is, of course, Jesus. He's the one that does that for us. As bad as we have messed up our story, as much as we are culpable in bringing sin into the world, just as Adam and Eve did long ago, we are not without hope. So God is writing into our story grace. The grace we find in Jesus. And we'll never experience it unless we do two things. One, take responsibility. For our part in separating our relationship between us and God, we have to start there. And two, to let go of this idea that if we were in charge, it would be better. To trust God that wherever you are in your story with Him, He has put you there for a reason. He is working in your life. You may not see it, you may not feel it, but He is at work on your behalf for your good and for His glory. To trust that, like Adam and Eve did not. And if we do those two things, 
I think we find ourselves firmly planted in the third chapter of redemption. And in that chapter, there is hope, there is grace, there is love, there is peace, there's joy. So that's where we're heading next week. So I hope you'll come back and hear some more about this. But what we got to start with is a response to what God has spoken to us this morning. I want to pray, and then we have a time of response. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this amazing story of your grace. The grace to create us, the grace to suffer with us as we sin, the grace to redeem us and give us a hope for a future that we can barely imagine here and now. God, I pray for us that we would see that you are writing yourself into our story. That we let go of any notion that we could do better and that we would own up to our part that has created space between us and you, our creator. In the midst of that, you would just, God, envelop us with your love. Remind us of your son, Jesus. Bring us closer to you. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have an invitation this morning. As we sing a hymn, I want to invite you to come. If you need to pray, come and pray. If you want to pray by yourself, come to the steps and pray. I'll be down front. I'd love to pray for you. But if I could highlight those two things once again. To enter into that third chapter of redemption. We have to do what Adam and Eve didn't didn't do. We have to take responsibility for our own sin. To the Lord in prayer. To confess it. To seek his forgiveness. That's the first and most essential step we can make. And two is to trust God. That he's in charge. And he's doing a far better job than I ever could. He knows what he's doing. I'm going to trust God no matter what the circumstances look like. I'm trusting God here and now in my life. And so I'm relinquishing the impulse to take charge and write my own story. I hope one of those two things connects with you. If not, I trust that God has spoken to you in some way. And so as we respond in this invitation, uh, let's just talk to him about whatever he has been speaking to us about. Let's talk to him through prayer and through song. Let's stand together as we sing.